Canto 24 of The Purgatory continues with Ferese and Dante talking, as we'd been enjoying and drawn in by in Canto 23, and it develops the themes there about how to take in life so as to be able to experience more and more of divine life. Focusing a bit more now on desire and love itself, and I think how it combines with intelligence and sight. It's quite a joyful canto. Um, there's a lot of good life and feeling in it, but it has this sense too of sort of um, the bittersweet nature of our trying to align our wills, our sight, um, our desires, our love, um, as we stay with those who are realising the, the way they try to feed on life whilst they were alive, actually led them to starve their souls, which is what they're experiencing acutely now on Mount Purgatory. So Dante opens it by saying that they were walking fast, they had favourable winds, they were like sa uh, ships whose sails were full. Um, remember that the sailing metaphors have been used throughout the Divine Comedy, and this is a good moment um, for that speeding towards the Divine though the focus is going to be on Ferese and Dante still, um, Dante nods to Virgil and Statius, still communing, um, noticing that Statius himself is um, hanging back with them. Remember, he could just speed off to heaven now if he wanted to, um, but he's staying with Virgil. I imagine them in rich conversation um, between them as well. Um, Dante, interestingly, asks Ferese about his sister, um, Picarda, and she's going to become very significant when we first enter paradise. Um, she's celebrated here for how she was a very beautiful woman, both in body and soul. She'd achieved something on earth that these souls on Mount Purgatory didn't manage to achieve on earth, though, of course, they will, um, which I guess is why we look forward to meeting Picarda as well in this moment. And we also have a sense of the exchange between Dante and the rest of the souls here on this terrace. Um, they look at Dante, a living body. They're amazed at this miraculous sight, um, even as Dante looks at them. And he nods once more to seeing the omo in their faces, the round circles of their eyes and the M of their eyebrows. Um, nose ridges and the sides of their mouth. Remember, this is Omo, man, made in the image of God. And there's a sense here of it being referenced again, because as Dante looks at them, he sees their Omo very clearly in their shrunken faces. But as they look at him, a living soul, there by the grace of God, they see um, man made in the image of God as well. Um, there's a nice kind of play between the living and the dead, um, the, the questing um, and in their different aspects between the souls and Dante himself. And Dante asks Ferese whether he could name some of the other souls around him. And it's a little moment that's full of interest because naming now is seen as a generous act. It's allowing them their full humanity. Whereas if you remember before, souls were often rather nervous about being named in the Inferno. Um, out of shame. And Ferese does name some of the souls passing them by. Um, it's one of these moments in the Divine Comedy where we get lots of names that you can check up 
in the commentary. Um, but broadly speaking, they all bring to mind different aspects of how, in a way, a delight in life had led these souls astray because they'd gorged on the wrong things. Um, there's reference to a pope who so loved eels that he drowned the eels in white wine before he fed on them. There's reference to another character who so loved wine that he tended to reach for the glass the minute life threw him any problem. And of course, that led to a kind of addiction. Um, so we get this slightly more subtle element of this desire coming through that it's not that desire itself is wrong. In fact, as we're going to see, desiring God fully and wholly, wholeheartedly is absolutely crucial. But it's got to be directed aright towards the divine and not just get stuck on the good things of earth, which is what these souls find themselves doing. The bitter sweet nature of the place comes through once more, again because Dante notices another soul who seems to be calling out to him, and he turns to this soul and immediately notices that it pains the soul to speak because his mouth is so shrunken um, and words struggle to come out. And yet he also wants to speak because he knows that the pain is precisely what's enabling him to become more capable of the divine pleasures and shed off his habitual addiction almost to worldly pleasures. Um, it turns out that this chap is a poet. Um, he's called Bonajuenta. He lives a couple of generations before Dante and Dante encourages him to speak now, and they have a fairly brief exchange, though one that's full of interest too. It starts out with a prophecy that Bruno Juenta makes to Dante, saying there's going to be a woman in Luca who in the last bit of your life is going to seem beautiful to you because she's kindly. So referring to Dante's ongoing exile, but also raising the image of another beautiful soul, and then they move to speaking of these things in poetry. And the older poet says to Dante, look, we recognise your new style, um, which speaks of love in a different way that we hadn't managed to before. And it's very interesting. Um, it causes a lot of commentary um, because it's Dante in one way speaking about how he understood his own poetry. But here, I think, in terms of the spiritual transformation that Dante is fostering in us, what it highlights is that Dante managed to bring together love and the intellect in a new way, um, in the new style that he became famous for. Um, and in that in itself is a reflection on how he, I think, struggled with his erotic desires in younger life particularly through his infatuation with Beatrice, but managed to transcend them when he realised that that love, that energy inside him, wasn't an end in itself. But if he could ease up on his desire to possess the beautiful image of Beatrice, if not Beatrice herself, he could ride that energy to become more capable of perceiving of the beauty of the world around him, of divine things, the beauty of words, um, creating a new kind of poetry. And what enabled him to do that was bringing in this aspect of intelligence. Um, intelligence here 
meaning not reason or logic, um, but the capacity of mind to resonate with the divine intelligence within which all life arises. It might actually be better to call it a kind of perception and the ability to see nuance, to see subtlety, so that that enables you to go more deeply into things. Um, so, in fact, rising, it's going to turn out, is that as much about um, going into um, and seeing what before you've been blind um, to. And the energy that provides that sight, that perception, is the energy of love. So you get the sense that knowledge and will, desire and insight, um, love and intelligence start to come together when the soul doesn't just get stuck on desire for things of this world, but is able to go on a kind of journey through the things of this world into the things that this world um, echoes and reflects, which is to say, of course, divine things. And erotic love is at the heart of that, uh, Dante realises. But as we've been speaking before, it's the transformation of his erotic love that enables him to be carried towards the divine, much as Lucia had carried him after his first dream. And his own mind can become more and more capable of seeing things as he is carried up, as he's carried more deeply into the nature of reality. You might say it's love as a deeply aware communing, much as we've seen between the pairs Statius and Virgil, Dante and Ferrazzi, um, rather than love as a kind of wanting to possess and hold on to, which similarly is a bit like riding across the waves of life, um, like a ship in full sail, as opposed to the mindless consumption, you might say, which the souls around him are realising was how they led their lives. Um, but there's so much more, there's so much insight. Again, it's not that desire itself is bad, it's that desire can lead us to so much more if we bring all these aspects of ourselves together. The dynamic feel of the canto continues because Dante the Poet now describes how the group of souls that they've been alongside rush ahead. Um, they know which direction they're headed in. But Ferrazzi just hangs back a little bit more. Um, the souls rushing ahead are described um, like the storks gathering to leave the Nile as they migrate back north in the summer. And it's a nice little side image. You know, the Nile will be associated with Egypt, which would be associated with slavery. So these souls are enacting their own freedom from slavery as they leave the land of the winter for the summer lands that they're going to feed on, perhaps as part of the dynamic flow of life. And then with the sense that Frazee is going to have to join those souls who are flying off ahead, he asks him, he asks Dante a rather beautiful question. He says, you know, when will we meet again? Remember, these were friends on earth. Um, will they be friends in heaven? Um, this wonderfully humane question. And Dante reflects on his own future um, in a rather lovely way too. Um, he says that he knows now that when he dies, his mind will want him to go to the shores of Mount Purgatory so he can begin a second ascent to become fully ready for heaven in eternity. And he says also that whilst he knows he's going to be in exile, whilst he can see and feel the loss 
of his city, Florence, he's going to be able to say it goodbye. He's going to be able to leave it behind. And it's a, another crucial moment where we get a sense of Dante's own progress. Um, you'll remember that he has felt very bitterly about the decline of Florence and the wars in Italy that destroyed it for him. Um, he's lamented um, that as well, lower down on Mount Purgatory. And so now here, that little bit further up, he's signalling that he's able to leave it behind. It's appropriate that he can do that here too, because his desire is now focused on heavenly things, even as he feels the loss of what he so longed for and desired in life, which was to live in his lovely city of Florence. Ferrazzi adds a second prophecy at this point and says, you know, those that caused the downfall of Florence, he can see, will be punished by God. They will go to the inferno to undergo that longer, if not everlasting journey. You know, I think we're left unclear quite what's going to happen to all the souls in the inferno. Um, it's a much more terrifying state of mind to be in, that's for sure. And Ferrazzi says, you know, that will happen to those souls who caused the decline of Florence. But at this moment, actually, Dante doesn't quite understand what Ferrese is saying. It's almost as if he has, at least in this moment, um, escaped the consumption that would want just more and more vengeance for what's happened, and actually is in a much more maybe forgiving, but certainly free state of mind. So, it's kind of appropriate that at this moment Ferrazzi leaves Dante and he rushes off to draw to join the souls who have pulled ahead. And Dante returns to the side of Statius and Virgil. The three are reunited and it says that they huddled close together as they made their way across this terrace. And then they come across a second tree. It too is full of lovely looking fruit it too is fed by the waters tumbling down Mount Purgatory, the waters of life from Eden. And there are lots of souls gathered underneath this tree who are looking longingly at it, um, learning, living again for of their desire in life, but now resisting um, plucking the fruit that might seem to satisfy them speedily and quickly. And indeed, a voice from this tree tells them that they can't eat this fruit, but that they must hold off so that their longing can be properly satisfied when they've risen that little bit more and can eat from the fruit of the trees that are in Eden, the, the fruit, the water of eternity and everlasting life. Um, so it's a moment when the souls are learning not to deny their desire, but to direct and cultivate their desire aright. We're made to desire, you might say, and the tree then invites the souls to recall two groups who didn't manage to direct their desire aright as kind of counter exemplars. Um, one group is the mythical, mythological group of centaurs who we met in the Inferno. Um, remember, they were known for their violence. Um, the tree now adds that it was a drunken violence um, as they over-consumed on wine um, to fire their rage. And the tree also um, rehearses the Hebrews who joined Gideon to fight the Midianites. But Gideon chose those Hebrews who, when they approached a stream to quench their thirst, um, 
cupped the water in their hands and brought it into their mouths, rather than just, as it were, throwing their faces into the stream to drink as rapidly as they could. I guess the point is that Gideon felt those who carefully drank from the stream were more likely to carefully fight in the war as well, and so be better troops, not rushing into the middle of the battle, um, but considering how they might approach it. And the three carry on walking. The mood settles slightly now. It says that they're lost in thought. Um, they're walking together without speaking, but sharing a kind of communion of their company once more, but perhaps wondering quite how to lift their sights to the next terrace. And I wonder whether their thoughts are about how to direct their love, communion, enjoyment of each other, um, that kind of horizontal plane amongst questing, pilgrimaging souls and friends, how to direct that in a more vertical direction, um, which literally is what they're going to have to do to carry on climbing Mount Purgatory. And luckily enough, um, of course there's no luck in Purgatory, I think because they're desiring it, an angel appears and it makes Dante somewhat jump. Um, but interestingly, he's not full of fear this time and notices how its face glows, how brilliant um, the light that comes from it is. And the angel speaks to Dante and says, there is the pathway up to the place of peace, to the place of satisfaction. And so the angel guides them. You know, very interesting that Statius doesn't guide them. Um, all three of them, you might say, are kind of in this together at this point. Um, and so the angel helps them all. In a very beautiful, touching moment, again, creating a sense of calm and peace after the rush of quite a lot of the canto. Um, Dante feels the angel's wing. He's removing another pea from his forehead. And he says, it's like a fresh breeze on a May spring morning, rushing through the new grass and picking up the fragrance of the flowers and leaves. It's an absolutely delightful moment to draw this canto to a close. And as if to explain why they're feeling this kind of sense of satisfaction and peace, even as they step out for the next part of the ascent, the angel offers a very Aristotelian sounding gloss on the beatitude, blessed are those who hunger after righteousness, because the angel explains that hunger is the mean between, on the one hand, not desiring at all, but on the other hand, desiring excessively. Dante himself is integrating his theology as he thinks, as he rides this energy of desire and love, bringing together what he'd been taught from the church of his times with the old insights of Aristotle, which of course is partly what creates the new insights, which is what his desire now a thinking and perceiving better sighted desire is leading him towards.